jihadists and terrorist groups still need to be on the mainstream platforms again because that's where the community and the user base is and that's where the recruitment takes place. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the online activity of the Islamist terrorist organization Islamic State, often referred to as IS or ISIS. IS is renowned for its highly sophisticated media strategy and exploitation of the internet to disseminate its propaganda and recruit members. We'll be examining how IS and its supporter networks have evolved in their use of the internet, what platforms and technologies they exploit, and the techniques they use to avoid tech platform moderation. Joining us today is Mili Krisis, a graduate fellow at the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril, and PhD student in Justice, Law and Criminology at American University, whose research focuses on Islamic State propaganda, extremist presence on encrypted apps, and gender and political violence. Also with us today is Raphael Gluck, co-founder of Jihadoscope, an organization that monitors jihadist activity across the internet. He has written extensively on the use of technology by extremist groups, and his work has been featured in outlets such as The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Guardian. Mealy started by giving me some more insight into how Islamic State's media strategy has evolved alongside the growth of the internet. I think I'll start off real quick with like a general background about, you know, some Salafi jihadist online activities in general, just to provide a wider context. But Aaron Zellin had a really good framework. It's a four phases framework about, I guess, the involvement over time of the type, various types of online activities ramping up. So in the first phase, he talks about the first phase being mainly offline. So, you know, magazines, newsletters, circulating tapes, you know, the really old school methods, right? And then his second phase, he terms it as the, it's in the mid 90s. And he characterizes it as static web pages that are just, you know, showing content run by a, you know, a moderator or like the person behind the website, but there's zero interaction, right, from the audience itself. The third phase is beginning mid 2000s, where there uh, are chat forums, and this is characterized as being web 2.0. And it's, you know, when people are starting to be able to actually engage with one another, you know, these password locked uh, forums, for example. And then the fourth phase is where we are at right now, which is very user centered, it's shifted a lot away from from the admin side and just kind of like a, a message going out to a wider audience, but that can't really have too much engagement. Or if you do have engagement, you have to have all the passwords and it's hard to access that online. Now it's like, you know, I think anyone out there can just go online and if they are looking hard enough, they can find pro-IS individuals and even talk to them directly if they wish to do so. So now just very user-centered. But for Islamic State specifically, it was back in 2014 where they were, you know, heavy on Twitter you know, Twitter was getting fed up with them. So around like 2015, 2016, they had a major push to get these uh, IS supporters off of this platform. And then they, a lot of them decentralized onto Telegram. They were like, oh my God, you know, we can't stay up on Twitter. So, you know, what, what are we going to do? We're going to go towards Telegram and this might be a better new stable home for us. JM Berger has really good stuff about IS Twitter. He has numerous reports about this. So if anyone's interested, definitely check that out. But um, when IS went to Telegram, uh, they found quite a really stable, good spot for them to just exist on. They could share file, you know, huge file repository sharing capabilities. They felt secure on it because you can also enable end-to-end encryption 
through various uh, a certain chat mode. Also, Telegram is able to host very large groups. So you can have like things called super groups where you have hundreds of members, or you can keep it, you know, more private and have maybe like only 10 or 20 people in a group. So private groups is also public groups that can be found by keyword searches. Not so much of that anymore, but back in 2018, when I got on there, I just did some keyword searches and all this stuff popped up immediately. So I thought, wow, that was that was really easy. Uh, just do some keyword search in Arabic and English. And, you know, I found it within seconds. I was actually quite shocked. I thought, whoa, oh my God. But um, the point is, is like Telegram is still a really preferred spot for a lot of uh, supporters, even though there still are ongoing waves of, you know, trying to shove these Islamic State supporters off Telegram. You know, it's still pretty stable for them. There's still groups operating on their private and public, uh, you know, channels are disseminating large amounts of IS propaganda. Tech Against Terrorism's open source intelligence team has been closely monitoring and disrupting Islamic State's evolving use of the Internet. In our most recent trends report, we concluded that IS and its official provinces continue to have a robust online presence, producing and disseminating a large volume of propaganda content. IS typically targets small file sharing platforms to host content and shares links to this material on messaging platforms, as well as IS affiliated channels, servers and websites. IS supporter networks also continue to target big tech platforms, sharing official and unofficial propaganda, which is often edited in some way to avoid moderation. I asked Raphael to explain how IS has continuously innovated and adopted emerging technologies. Islamic State has always um, kept up, uh, and any terrorist group has really kept up with every advance that we make with web and web technologies. and. Generative AI is one area that's become a very big concern and maybe been more concerned than we have examples of, of this abuse. But it's one area that has authorities worried. And we've seen little bits of tinkering by terrorist groups trying to, to get going on these technologies to manipulate the media and to sort of do their job for them the same way we hope AI does it for us. We have more secure, more encrypted social media, we have platforms like uh, emerging things like Session, current existing platforms, um, Telegram and WhatsApp, moving more and more to encryption. Even the web, as we know, I think Google says three quarters of web traffic is the HTTPS. It's encrypted today. And that's just because that's, you know, that, that's where we've all moved. But at the same time, that's something that terrorist groups are going to take advantage of. We've seen the introduction of cryptocurrencies, NFTs, blockchains. All those things are welcomed by Islamic State who begin to tinker and play around and hope to find the great escape because the mainstream platforms, and we could even throw in Telegram into this one you know, for this discussion, uh, continue to turn the screw and make it more difficult. And, and that eventually gets to the frustrations of jihadists and terrorist groups who still need to be on the mainstream platforms again, because that's where the community and the user base is, and that's where their recruitment takes place. Of course, once once recruitment has taken place, it can move anywhere, and it can even stay on a mainstream platform. But it, because it's end to end encrypted, there's nothing that that mainstream companies could do about it. If somebody wants to have an end-to-end encrypted conversation on Telegram or even WhatsApp or any platform that offers, I mean, Twitter's about to offer encrypted DMs. There is nothing that we know of simply that could stop that. 
One trend Rafael mentioned is the use of generative AI. At Tech Against Terrorism, we are aware of examples of IS-affiliated networks experimenting with this technology, including publishing guides on a secure use and using AI transcription tools to transcribe and translate official IS propaganda. Despite the larger tech companies clamping down on Islamic State and their supporters, pro-IS networks continue to target these platforms due to their huge audience reach. Mili explains how these networks will continuously experiment with new ways of avoiding detection in order to establish a presence there. So what I noticed after time observing these different mainstream platforms of what IS supporters were doing to get around the content moderation, they would do things like text and image altering. So they'll think changing the color of like a Naba newspaper background will get them past the detection system. They'll blur videos. So maybe they're posting an Islamic State video, but they'll blur the flag out or they'll put emoji over it to cover it up. They're also uploading sounds to TikTok under random labels. So these are Islamic State Anashid specifically. And when you hear it right, if you know the Anashid, you'll recognize like, yes, this is Islamic State uh, related, but they'll put it under things like cool sound. You know, they'll just label it with different things and they'll be able to upload it. So if it's not caught, right, then they're able to have their own sounds on TikTok and, you know, other supporters can use these sounds as well for their videos. They also use, rely a lot on coded in-group language. For example, they're not explicitly saying that, hey, I'm an IS supporter. Everyone friend me if you like IS. They'll use certain terminologies that for, for like in-group supporters, they'll say, okay, you know, they'll have like black flag symbols. They'll have certain emojis. Or if you look at it in a wider context, you'll say, okay, this is someone who probably is a low-key IS supporter. So then they'll also do things like lock their profiles. So you know, they're not like publicly having Islamic State content on there. But if you can see past the lock, the locks profile, you'll see a bunch of IS content that's only viewable to their friends. And these are some of the more private accounts that probably don't want to have to deal with getting banned all the time, because there are ones that are very public and overt. But I don't think they seem to last too long, because it's public, and they'll just post very overt ISIS propaganda. But then yeah, it's kind of the, the balance right between reaching a larger audience on a mainstream platform versus, you know, being able to maintaining your account. There's also individuals who won't post content like on their actual page or you know Instagram page or Facebook profile page but what they'll do is they'll share stories and they'll think that that is a way to avoid content moderation it's like well if you look at their profile you don't see anything Islamic State related but if you look at their story you see a bunch of ISIS stuff right so that's kind of an interesting tactic of course they have backup accounts that's not surprising and then they'll cross post on social media in case the content is deleted so maybe if they have a certain Facebook profile they'll say if my account goes down here they contact me on Telegram and I'll tell you my new account on Facebook. So they use a home base on another platform and then they'll bounce back to the original one where they were banned. On Twitter, I used to see a lot of hijacking of accounts of IS supporters taking over old accounts that were no longer in use, just, you know, random ones. I don't know if I, I haven't been able to look at Twitter as closely anymore, but it used to be, um, yeah, pretty common to see this type of thing. And then also people will use the tactic of, again, not posting pro-IS content themselves on their own pages and profiles, but instead they'll go to other people and they'll make pro-ISIS comments. And that's kind of how they might grow the network of finding like-minded people, you know, so they'll go to another person who is more overt about this ISIS stuff and they'll start making pro-IS comments. And I guess if they get their comment reported, they potentially could get banned, but it's not probably not like an immediate ban, probably like a, you know, multiple strikes you're out type of thing. So they think that's a bit safer. And then some are actually technically not breaking the rules, but they still are able to convey a pro-IS ideology, again, through the, uh, you know, the in-group language, the kind of coded emojis. You know, you just know it when you see it. That's kind of what they are relying on with uh, other individuals to recognize that. And then it's like, well, technically, they're not breaking the rules, so you can't ban them, but you know what they're about. 
A long-standing trend that has been of concern to Tech Against Terrorism is the use of terrorist-operated websites by groups across the ideological spectrum. Based on our monitoring, IS networks are increasingly targeting websites likely due to the relative stability and security of content there, as well as the ability to host large volumes of propaganda content. Raphael shares these concerns around websites. Websites present the most surface, easily available content to anybody who is starting to go down the wrong path. Sometimes some of the elements involved in being an Islamic State supporter really mean like getting your hands dirty. If you're a real cool guy who's, who's really has bad intentions in mind, you're going to want to be using a system that's encrypted, that's deletable. You're going to want to put one of those uh, Linux distributions like Tails on your system. You're going to want to use the, the tool browser. You're going to not just use a simple thing like a VPN, which is kind of everybody is being encouraged to use a VPN. So many people are using it for so many different reasons, just to get their sports programming from other countries, etc. So you know, everybody has easy access to one. But the website is the, the most mainstream way of Islamic State sharing its message with supporters. Of course, if you get there, you can from there, figure your way out to becoming much more secure. Some of these websites also contain tutorials for using the Onion Router. Some of them contain a ways to get involved with Islamic State in by terms of donations, etc. So they present a um, Pandora's box of opportunity for potential recruits. Again, ISIS will tell its supporters and its activists take all the precautions, use the dark web etc. But they also have these things running concurrently because, again, they know that it's the mainstream people they need to recruit, whether they are in the West or closer to home. So the website remains part of the strategy. On August 3rd, 2023, IS announced the death of its caliph, who was reportedly killed in Syria in April. This is the third caliph killed since February 2022, representing a significant blow to the group. I wanted to know what topics IS have been promoting in their propaganda, and how IS respond to global events to fit their narrative. We've seen ISIS try to stay more relevant in terms of the political process and global events. Corona was a very good example. ISIS had to give its spin on COVID as if it was a punishment from God. Many earthquakes and, and hurricanes, etc., since then have become focus for, for jihadist groups. Ignoring the political process has always been a big thing because they don't you know they don't subscribe to, to democracy. So we have we have ISIS commenting on a on a weekly basis on events more and more, just again to show that this was written yesterday or this is relevant. Or for instance, the recent burning of a Quran as part of a free speech event or protest event in Sweden has become has really gripped the the entire world with a lot of condemnation but also within the Islamist world of, of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Those are things that they have to speak about. And of course, from their perspective, their militant perspective, it's about calling for revenge and calling out all the other Muslim countries who give lip service by just condemning the, the event, but also standing with their Western allies, including Sweden. So those are things that they talk about. They talk about the narrative of the growth of ISIS, the focus of the growth of ISIS in Africa, the war on Christians, which is just, you know, Africa-based because they are targeting so many elements of Christian, lots of Christian persecution going on in Africa, but they're also able to magnify that as a war on the Crusaders. So it doesn't matter if the Crusaders are in, in England and 
France or in the US we're killing Christians in Mozambique. Therefore, if it's a continued war of Christians, it doesn't matter where it is. They continue pushing the elements of patience, which is a very core tenant of the, of the Islamic State approach to jihad, that things will happen, things have to fall into place. And then the issue of prisoners is a very big deal uh, for ISIS, whether it's detainees in the Al Hol and Al Raj camp and the suffering that they endure, whether it's the, the summer heat or the winter cold or the, uh, the ridicule by their guards, as well as various clerics around the world held on ISIS-related charges and um, those kind of narratives. So how can we combat Islamic State online? Rafal suggests utilizing emerging technologies such as generative AI to improve moderation of terrorist content. I think with every threat and with every every move we make, with every advance of technology also contains the the, the almost the solution or the potential solution to these problems. Uh, again, we spoke about the threat of generative AI, but we also have been hearing for years about how tech companies are using technology to detect these kind of behaviors much more. And, and as time goes by and we get the insight that we we do by, by seeing some of these tools, we also see that some of the solution is already ingrained and built in and we could perhaps use our own um, human input and intuition to help um, develop these tools as much as, again, we see them as a threat. To give you an example, we were recently clocking and, and loading some of our digital media and we were downloading it for a vendor we share things with and we're showing it on Dropbox. And I noticed on the side there was uh, the Dropbox AI suggestion tool that it could, the uh, video could be transcribed and uh, it could be summarized. And it was in Arabic. And within a short space of time, we're just pressing the button, the video came back with the, the message came back that uh, this contained um, references to war, Islam, and threats to non-Muslims, which is like, it was a core video and we, we, we would have diagnosed it that way as well. But we also could have been sleeping and that could have happened in our sleep and it could have been automated and it could have been flagged and it could have perhaps been brought to human intervention for quick checking over. Our vigilance on the mainstream platforms, despite the fact that we think of YouTube or Facebook or Twitter as far less a safe space for them and these accounts are getting deleted, we still have to perfect our you know, vigilance and keep looking at these mainstream platforms to see how people are getting sucked in the first place. So we can use our tools to also do more for us. We can also continue, you know, for us to look at uh, the evolution of this technology and and anything emerging will always require human oversight. There's a, it's a generation of work ahead of us in terms of these tools being introduced and being perfected. Mealy highlights the importance of closely monitoring IS and being vigilant about the adoption of dangerous new technologies or techniques. Just being on the lookout, especially for any new apps that they themselves are able to develop, really want to keep on top of that. And of course, you know, like 3D, (laughs) right? 3D printing and file sharing, but also just generally paying attention to any new uh, instructional manuals that might come out because there was a foundation that would have uh, pretty regularly, they would release like these pretty clear instructional manuals of like, you know, how to build bombs, how to make chemical weapons, biowarfare, just kind of things like that. And so just be aware of any new initiatives that are pushing that those things out. And then I really think something to be concerned about is the, the ideological overlap spaces and the crossover aesthetics, because it's interesting. It's kind of amorphous and odd, 
seemingly, but it's something where, you know, individuals from different ideologies kind of coalescing together. Yeah, you just want to pay attention to that and like what's going on, how is it changing, you know, where are they preferring to go online and, you know, what are the trends and propaganda narratives. Thank you to our guests, Mili and Raphael, for their input in today's episode. At Tech Against Terrorism, we continue to closely monitor and disrupt Islamic State activity online, including by alerting tech platforms to official content through the terrorist content analytics platform, TCAP. If you want to learn more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism. If you want to find out more about trends in terrorist use of the internet, we'll share our 2022 trends report in the show notes. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with a brand new episode. And if you enjoy listening, please rate, leave a review and share the episode as that really helps new people find us. This is an OG podcast production. Executive producer is Archie McFarlane. Produced by Adrian Dangor. Edited and sound design by Oli Giyu. Music by Rowan Bishop.